Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Wednesday, February 7th. Oh, dear God, we are moving quickly through this month. And honestly, a lot of big news in my life right now. A lot of things changing. Again, I'm still grappling internally with the push and pull of working abroad and being busy or staying in one place and settling down and blah, 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 blah. So that has not changed. But yeah, a lot of big life updates. Don't really want to talk about them right now on the podcast. But what I do want to start with is our boy Tucker Carlson is headed to Moscow, or I guess as of now, he is in Moscow. And you guys know Tucker Carlson. And (laughs) I highly doubt he had on his bingo card, Trump sycophant, propagandist, conspiracy theorist, and Putin brown noser all on his same bingo card. But in the last even like three years, he's managed to almost do a completely blackout board in bingo. And I do wonder if you looked at Tucker Carlson in like 2008 and asked him, dude, like, where are you going to be in 16 years? I doubt he would have said going to Russia to interview Vladimir Putin during a war where most of the world is calling him an authoritarian, genocidal, war crimes committing leader. And Tucker's going there because, again, Tucker has become the face of just asking questions, right? And Tucker's transition, his transformation, really, really fascinating. Really, really fascinating. And anyways, like, he is interviewing, interviewing Putin tomorrow, and his claim is that people aren't going to like what Putin says And he's just doing it because it's important as a journalist to do it. And in theory, that makes sense to me. But we also have to remember that Tucker Carlson's been one of the biggest anti-Ukrainian aid activists on news media and in the political space. He also, big supporter of Viktor Orban, for example, big fan of Jair Bolsonaro, the former president of Brazil, January 6th, retconner, whatever you want to call it. And so do you really think that he's just going to let Putin speak and then maybe push back or disagree? No, he is giving uh, pretty much a microphone and a huge platform to Vladimir Putin to basically spout all of his imperialist propaganda lies. And Tucker's base is going to watch it and nod their heads because Tucker's been priming them for this for years. So we'll probably talk about this more once it actually airs tomorrow. Yeah, I hate myself. So I will be watching it. Again, I watch these things so you don't have to. It will be fascinating, no doubt about it. But Tucker's a deplorable, just a deplorable person at this point. And obviously Vladimir Putin is a deplorable monster. So, hey, can't think of a nicer duo to do this together. But I'm going to play just a little bit of Tucker's video he put out yesterday where basically he justifies why he's doing this. And it's very Tucker Carlson-esque. We're in Moscow tonight. We're here to interview the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. We'll be doing that soon. (laughs) There are risks to conducting an interview like this, obviously. So we thought about it carefully over many months. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not in... By the way, Tucker Carlson saying he's doing this to inform people and how risky it is. A, it's risky because he's giving a platform to Vladimir Putin and his audience is already primed to believe that platform. And B, (laughs) just trying to understand the truth is not what he's doing. He's going there for a reason because he's become a right-wing reactionary and all of them go to either Hungary or Russia 
to basically show their bona fides or whatever you want to say. They have no real idea what's happening in this region, here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances, and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. Anyways, I'm not going to play all of this. We'll we'll probably go over his interview with Putin. But I always find it interesting how he basically creates a contrast of like, oh, this is one of the worst conflicts. It's horrible for Ukraine, younger generations. And then he goes right into also the economy and the money we're putting into this. Like he's able to kind of justify not supporting this war because of the economy and the financial side of it, while also just kind of downplaying just the human and humanitarian cost of this. So anyways, I guess I'll hear, I'll play a little more. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. These are not small changes. They are history-altering developments. They will define the lives of our grandchildren. All right, I can't listen to any more, but you guys get the picture. He's going there as a hero to, to discuss the geopolitics of our time, and no one better to ask than Vladimir Putin, who's been lying about this from the beginning. And look, I'm, I'm fine with interviewing people you don't agree with, but we know where Tucker stands on this, and I don't think this is going to be a productive interview. Maybe I'll be wrong. I highly doubt it. Anyways, last week I talked about Nevada's very strange and annoying primary versus caucus system due to technicalities. Nikki Haley was one of the only candidates on the primary vote, which happened yesterday in Nevada. She had zero, well, there were zero delegates associated with the primary caucuses the next day. Trump is on that. And Trump obviously wins delegates for Nevada. And man, Nikki Haley (laughs) had a very, very poor showing, let's just say. And I didn't mention it last week when I talked about the primary versus caucus chaos in Nevada. But basically, I should have mentioned that there was also a none of the above option yesterday in the primary, and it looks like she lost to none of the above. And this was basically Trump supporters trolling the primary and saying none of the above instead of Nikki Haley, which to me is just another telling sign that she says she can win the electability argument against Biden. But the thing is, is that she first has to get out of the primary. And I think I think that ship has already sailed. Reuters notes here in quotes, Haley lost Nevada's Republican primary handily on Tuesday, even though she was the only candidate listed on the ballot. She she secured, sorry, just 31% in the contest, well behind the 63% of the ballots cast for none of the above. And that's according to Nevada election officials and Reuters. And of course, now Nikki Haley's campaign today brushed this off, said it's nothing to worry about, and said that she's going to press on ahead of South Carolina And again, this is a long shot challenge, but she is continuing. She's definitely continuing. And the interesting thing here, too, is that the Trump campaign just did not even talk about the primary. They didn't even focus on the primary. There was no GOTV or get out to vote campaign on the Trump side for the primary because they're just like, screw it. And 
Trump was at a, a rally in Las Vegas in late January, and he basically just told the crowd, don't worry about the primary, don't show up, just focus on the caucus. And interestingly enough, according to Reuters, 44,000 people cast a ballot in the primary for none of the above candidates. And that's more than double the votes for Haley in the primary. So not a great look. And Olivia Perez Cubas, who is the spokesperson for the Haley campaign, she downplayed the loss and argued basically that the process favored Trump. I mean, I think you have to look in the mirror at this point and say, yeah, it kind of did favor Trump. But the entire Republican infrastructure right now is favoring Trump. And you have to just ask yourself, like, can we actually be competitive when the system is for Trump and when the Republican Party is behind Trump? Like, of course, you could argue it was rigged or the system didn't work for Nikki Haley. But at the end of the day, the the voters want Trump. And that's a sad reality that I think a lot of um, centrist, centered left, never Trumpers like me are kind of grappling with is like, yeah, maybe Nikki Haley actually has a better chance of beating Joe Biden than Trump does, which I'll talk about in a moment. But at the end of the day, the party doesn't really care about that. They identify with Trump. They want Trump. And Nikki Haley's just not that. She's not it. Like, she's doing cringy appearances, cameos, whatever you want to say on SNL, and Trump's doing rallies and destroying her. By the way, if you haven't, check out that uh, SNL cold opening from last week where it's, it's, um, it's, you know, a, a, a Trump rally, and, or it's a Trump Q&A or a town hall, I guess would be the best way to put it. And Nikki Haley actually plays herself and shows up to ask Trump a question. It's really cringy, but it, I think it shows that now she is truly trying to appeal to centrists and independents. And I think she's kind of given up hope on trying to appeal to the MAGA base, which is not exactly great if you're trying to become the Republican nominee. And so anyways, getting to other stuff, though. Nikki Haley, I kind of want to talk about her in general for a few minutes because she is, I think the last week for her has been confusing, contradictory, and there there are some interesting sets of polls that maybe are the reason why she wants to keep going ahead leading up to South Carolina. For example, there's a new Wisconsin poll that actually shows Trump tying with Joe Biden in a general election, but also shows Haley ahead of of both of them by 15 points in a general election. Of course, this is in Wisconsin and it's just one poll. But if you're her team reading this, maybe you go, well, you're telling me there's a chance. And Politico has a good piece on this. It writes here in quotes, a new Marquette Law School poll in Wisconsin showed Haley leading President Joe Biden by 15 percentage points among likely voters. And that number was 57% to 42%. The poll also shows though, Trump, meanwhile, was neck to neck with Biden, 50% to 49%. And of course, as we as we all know, if you follow politics, that is well within the polls margin of error, or what their margin of error is, is minus 4.4 percentage points. So basically, the point is, is that the poll shows that if Nikki Haley went against Biden in the general election, she has a better chance of beating him than Trump does, which I mean, a lot of us have been saying, of course, that's a whole can of a can of worms here, because She's not probably going to be going against Biden, and the base doesn't want her, so it's kind of a mood point, but also we have to remember that this isn't like a huge poll. The Marquette um, Law School conducted the survey in late January. The sample was 848 likely voters. Respondents were interviewed online by phone, and they were contacted via a panel. They were contacted via voter files, phone numbers, email addresses, and that's where the information has come. But as we know, for quite some time now, Nikki Haley has been emphasizing her electability. 
there was a Wall Street Journal poll, I think it was back in November, no, I think it was December, it put Nikki Haley 17 points ahead of, uh, of Joe Biden. And the thing is, is that I think that's probably true, to be completely honest, is because she's a moderate, she's not seen as crazy, she definitely can appeal to a wider electorate. But those numbers just are not convincing Republican voters to actually vote against Trump. And I don't think they really have to. And like, if we had stronger candidates, and if Biden was a stronger candidate, I think the Republican Party would be forced to have this conversation. But they're not because Trump time and time again, has been resilient with all the indictments. And also he's been doing well in the primaries. So I think kind of the idea is the base loves him. And honestly, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like I think the Republican Party's broke, but I don't think the voters see it that way. Also, my issue here is that she keeps making this argument, but she keeps losing primaries. And I guess she's really not looking that electable in her own party to me. So if you want to make the electability argument, you need to actually start becoming electable. And NPR has a good point. It, it talks about exit polling and entrance polling. And it writes here in quotes, polls show that voters just don't care that much about electability. Entrance polls show that only 14% of Iowa GOP caucus goers said a candidate's ability to defeat Biden was their top priority and factor in choosing. Meanwhile, 41% chose someone who shared their values. Now, to me, there is something uniquely contradictory and maybe even dangerous and toxic about this phenomenon, or maybe all of the three. It tells me that voters just don't care about electability, but they also want Trump, who is kind of a toxic candidate. So then if Trump loses, they won't trust the results and they will find the election rigged. The reality is that it's kind of a slippery slope and a self-fulfilling prophecy in a sense. And so that's going to be fun to see pan out again, probably in 2024's election. Now, another side note of this is that electability is something that I think we have seen change quite, quite a lot. Basically, in 2008, for example, you saw voters not really care about electability. There were two terms of George W. Bush, so the opposing party, which was Democrats, they were fine with Obama over Hillary Clinton because it's something new. They wanted change. They saw this as a moment where after eight years of Bush, they could move on to something different, and it panned out. But then on the other side of this, in 2012, Republicans wanted Obama gone when he was running for re-election, so Iowa caucus goers and New Hampshire caucus or um, primary voters said electability was key because they needed to beat the incumbent. The thing here is that I actually think if the Republican Party was more sensible, <laughs> which as we know, it's currently not, they should know that Biden's already beat their candidate, and it's pretty much a coin flip who wins this time around. So maybe new blood against an old guy, Biden, would be good. Of course, that's not the reality we live in. So it's kind of a mood point. So I might as well move on. The other thing I did want to just briefly mention about Nikki Haley is that she is now becoming a victim to what other critics of Trump, and she's not even much of a critic. I mean, she, she said he was the right person at the right time, but now we need to move on. Like she's been pretty milquetoast in her criticism of Trump, but she is criticizing him. So now she is with the territory, or she is now existing in the territory that Liz Cheney and Kinzinger and Mitt Romney all live in, which is that you have to hire security. <laughs> Isn't that nice? NPR has another piece I was reading. It writes, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley has requested Secret Service protection following an increase in threats. 
The article talks about how the request comes after the, she's had a lot of these swatting attacks. For people that aren't aware, swatting attacks are when basically people make false reports, call into law enforcement, and the idea is they want to provoke some sort of emergency response. And people have been doing this to Nikki Haley at her home. And she was on Meet the Press, and she talked about how one of these incidents where someone, you know, called and did a false report, law enforcement showed up and reacted while Nikki Haley was not there, but her elderly parents were at home. And she, excuse me, she said on Meet the Press, in quotes here, the last thing you want to see is multiple law enforcement officials with guns drawn pointing at my parents. It's an awful situation. And this is just the shitty factor just the really shitty factor of what's happened to the Republican Party is the base sees Trump as their godlike, cult-like figure, and they will threaten anyone who stands up against them. And I'll, I'll never forget that like Mitt Romney was spending just a shit ton of, I think, I forget the number, so I'm not even going to quote it, but it was thousands and thousands of dollars a day on security. And I think that completely shows... Basically how, if you're Mitt Romney, you can afford security and you can keep saying what you think. But if you're like a lower income, younger congressperson, you you can't really stand up because you can't afford the security. So you, so you either fall in line or resign. And it's just an, another sign of just how crazy everything is becoming. Anyways, before we are out of here, I did want to talk about basically basically how the Republican Party has had a pretty bad week in Congress and the RNC has had a bad week. It's just been a no good, very bad week all around. And again, it's showing us that the Republican Party is not about policy. And it's not about yes as an answer from Democrats, even if Democrats are willing to compromise and throw out some of their own values in order to pass anything. So first, I want to talk about the Mayorkas impeachment. So on January 31st, just well, actually, why don't we start with the recent event and then I'll back back up a little bit. Basically, <laughs> Everyone was saying the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas was not going to go forward. He is the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, secretary. And the, the Republicans have been trying to impeach him for quite some time because of his handling of the border, which I would argue is a political crisis. And it does, there, there are no grounds for impeachment. But anyways, they've gone ahead and it looks like it's over because Mike Gallagher, who is a Wisconsin Republican, Sometimes sensible, sometimes not. He's not really a squish either. He's not also really a renegade. He announced that he would oppose the impeachment vote, and, and this is in the House, alongside Ken Buck and Tom McClintock. Hey, Tom McClintock, the representative from uh, Nevada County, or from that district uh, where I'm born and raised, <laughs> in the Tahoe area and up into, up into like, the foothills. And <laughs> basically, obviously, there's such slim margins in the House that three people was enough. And so it looks like it's dead. And a little bit of a background on here because there's a lot to actually say. Back on January 31st, the House uh, Homeland Security Committee narrowly, and I, I repeat narrowly, voted only on party lines to advance the articles of impeachment against Secretary Mayorkas. And David Graham writes a really good piece in The Atlantic that I wanted to just read a bit of for a moment. He writes here in quotes, the entire thing is a fantasy. And, and, and by the way, this is back on January 31st. He writes, the impeachment is based on differences in border policy rather than any misconduct. Even as they move forward, House Republicans are avoiding legislation on the matter, working to snuff out a bill that would actually affect the border. He writes later, House Republicans' complaint, in short, is that Mayorkas is less of a border hawk than they are. 
Put differently, he stands accused of serving as a Secretary of Homeland Security in a Democratic administration. So it's all political. And I think we have to remember that like, it's, it's pretty damn hard to impeach a secretary, a cabinet member, I mean. And from my understanding, I was reading back in this, there's only been one cabinet member that's ever been impeached in U.S. history. It was War Secretary William Belknap. And he was accused of accepting lucrative kickbacks in return for federal posts. And he faced impeachment and then resigned. And they decided it wasn't even worth going forward with it because he resigned. And they're like, ah, WTF, let's just move on. And so it was kind of done. That's how things used to work is, you know, if you thought you were guilty or thought something was going on, you resigned. But anyways, my point here is that it's kind of hard to impeach a secretary. It's only happened once and the guy just resigned before it really even got going. And anyways, back to Mayorkas. The articles, <laughs> I love this. The articles allege here in quotes, that he repeatedly violated laws enacted by Congress regarding immigration and border security. In large part because of his in, uh, sorry, his unlawful conduct, millions of aliens have illegally entered the United States on an annual basis, with many unlawfully remaining in the United States. <sighs> this has been going on since 86, full stop. He has a different view than the Trump administration. Obama deported more people than Trump. Trump deported a decent amount, but not as many as Obama. And Biden's border policy, yes, it's been chaotic. Is it impeachable? Probably not. And the interesting thing is here is that it seems like the articles themselves here are kind of contradictory. And a lot of experts on both immigration law and constitutional law think that this is just a lot of contradictory overreach. David Graham writes here, Mayorkas is under attack for using powers that administrations of both parties have employed legally for decades. And I think that gets to the crux of this is that we have a failed, we have failed asylum and immigration policies in the United States. We haven't seen any huge instrumental breakthroughs since the 80s. And now we're trying to put band-aids on it, but we're also so divided that both sides seem to walk away. You know you're not also winning this when actually Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley, who are GOP rock stars for criticizing the Trump impeachments, they have rejected this, saying it's vague, unfair, too much overreach, administrative overreach. It's not good when Alan Dershowitz is saying, yeah, you guys don't really have a case here. And there's a guy that I quite like, David Beyer. He's an immigration expert at the Cato Institute, which is pretty libertarian, but I, I actually really agree with a lot of their pieces, especially on immigration. He's found, well, he's, he's just torn apart the legal arguments and the articles of, impeach, uh, of impeachment here in general. And he argues that Mayorkas is being charged with failing to follow circuit court decisions. But here's the caveat. These circuit court decisions that he's failing to follow were actually reversed by the Supreme Court already. So technically, supremacy type of ideas would say that the Supreme Court actually has, has, has authority over this. So Mayorkas is just following that. <laughs> and... Also, David Beer in the in the Cato paper also talks about how there's another passage that basically actually talks about how Mayorkas was just using powers that were granted to him by Congress, and now Congress is trying to impeach him. I guess this is what happens when you're not serious, and this is just a political witch hunt. It's funny because, again, Speaker Johnson talks about how he opposed the impeachments of Trump because they were political. But now when these are clearly eye for an eye politicized impeachments against Mayorkas and Biden, 
he says, oh, there's a lot of facts here. <laughs> I'm not seeing them, bro. I'm sorry. I'm just not. And again, just getting into the weeds for a moment, because I always like to do that. We just have to remember that the last time we actually had comprehensive, substantial reform was 1986. And this is when Congress enacted the Immigration Reform and Control Act. People also call this the Simpson-Mazzoli Act or the Reagan Amnesty Bill. And this is the one that Congress put forth and President Reagan signed into law in 1986 in November. And I encourage people to go on to the Library of Congress's archives. There's a lot of good pieces on this. And one of them writes here in quotes, This act introduced civil and criminal penalties to employers who knowingly hired undocumented immigrants or individuals unauthorized to work in the U.S. However, the act also offered legalization, which led to lawful uh, permanent residence programs and prospective naturalization to undocumented migrants who entered the country prior to 1982. It also writes farm workers who could validate at least 90 days of employment also qualified for lawful permanent residency. And I, I guess I would just say this bill was huge at the time, and it was probably important. But the thing is, is this was a very different period and a different time, and these were policies that actually were good for the U.S. at the time. We, we need bills and policies and just border, border ideas in general that actually can meet the moment. And the moment is different. We have global conflicts. We have an increasingly bad role of gang violence in Central and South America. We had a pandemic. And we have global uncertainty that's being exacerbated by climate change. And when you put all those into a pot and mix it up, you're going to have people seeking asylum, trying to get across the border. Sometimes it's economic opportunism. Sometimes it's necessity. But either way, the way it works right now is it's just not sufficient. And... (laughs) Impeaching the director of Homeland Security over just his view as an interpretation of how Congress and our courts want him to handle these crises, it's not impeachable. It just highlights all the problems going forward. The fact that you can come into the United States, see adjudicators, and then basically you have to wait out the hearing, which can sometimes take quite a long time, you can disappear into the system. Of course, there are criminals coming across, but I think the majority are, uh, the majority of people coming across are doing it out of necessity and also the idea that they know there's holes in our system and they can get away with it. And we're not going to solve those by Republicans blocking policy or by impeaching Mayorkas for political reasons so you can you know throw the red meat to your fox base. And going a little bit further, <laughs> CNN writes here, now, well, by the way, now we're getting into the Senate because the Senate's also not really had a good week. CNN writes here in quotes, the Senate GOP tanked a bipartisan border security deal on Wednesday, crafted by some of its own members, sparking a bitter internal divide in the Republican conference. And I think Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who was one of the four, by the way, four Republicans who wanted to advance the bill, I think she had a good statement. She said in quotes here, I have a difficult time understanding again how anyone else in the future is going to want to be on that negotiating team on anything, if we're going to be against it. And this is my problem here, is that this is the closest Democrats and Republicans got to actually comprehensive border security changes. Both sides didn't like it. Both sides were fighting parts of it. Both sides felt uneasy about certain parts of the bill. And I think that is the key 
That is how you know something is working when both sides don't like it, but they are pushing to agree on it. And I think Murkowski is right. What Democrats are now going to want to come to the table and work with Republicans when they know it's all in bad faith? I mean, even Senator Langford, who's quite a right winger, he's like, what the hell are you guys doing at this point? And yeah, the Republican Party is just the party of no. Sometimes maybe and yes are important. But anyways, it probably doesn't change anything because as I said earlier, it's neck and neck, Biden, Trump, not looking great. But the Republicans are just not serious. And unfortunately, now we had a chance for Ukraine funding, border funding, border policy aid, and Israel and Gaza aid. And now none of that is going through. And now people are going to have to get creative and probably more polarized over it. Anyways, it's getting late. I got to get out of here. Have a great night. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Adios. Thank you.